and see what he's going to share with us. Today we're in James chapter 4. If you're new to Meadowbrook, it's the norm for us to just take books of the Bible and work through the book of the Bible and chapter by chapter go through it verse by verse. That's the norm for us. And so we're in chapter 4. Now the good thing is you're not going to be lost. I'm going to catch you up. Uh, if you're new to us, you can go back and you can begin with me in chapter 1 and see that James is giving us a series of tests. I'm not one to take tests. I don't really like to take tests, but he's requiring this test of us, and it's important that we do it because what is at stake is eternity for us. He's wanting to test the authenticity of our faith, the authenticity of our words. Are we genuinely in relationship with God have we been redeemed by him is the word of God as he says in chapter one implanted in our heart because if it's implanted in our heart then it ought to be evident in our life so if you just go back with me to chapter one I'll catch you up on some of the tests that he's been giving to us uh, first in chapter one he says uh, here's test number one do you prove to be steadfast in the midst of various trials now that came at a perfect time for us because we were beginning in chapter 1 at the beginning of this trial that we were dealing with the pandemic and we just recognized that God was doing something to the global church that he was speaking to the global church because he was affecting the church around the the globe and he was speaking and he was testing and he was calling us out to see if we would be steadfast because what God does in the midst of trials is that he nurtures us, he builds us up, he makes us more full and more whole, complete in Christ. In fact, that we would be steadfast, immovable, and that we would have all that we need effectively in Jesus Christ. And then he goes in to say, now, do you handle temptations well? Do you handle them well as one who is redeemed by Christ Jesus? And do you give him the credit for his work in your life in the midst of those temptations or do you blame him for the temptation god you made me this way i can't change who i am this is the way you made me are you blaming him or do you say oh god you're doing a work in me in the midst of the trial in the midst of the temptation giving me way of escape that i might not uh, fall the way of the world is there evidence that there is the implanted word of God in your life? And are you a doer of the word and not just a hearer only? And then he finishes up the chapter to say, do you care for those who are vulnerable, those who are in need of compassion? Is, is it just that you have religion, a claim for something, or do you exercise in that reality of a compassionate heart where God has revealed his compassion to me, to you and me? So that's just in chapter 1, and he's just working through the tests, saying, how are you doing? Chapter 2, are you free from bias? Are you living without discrimination? And man, that came at a perfect time for us, because the world was talking about discrimination and racism. And you and I took the Word of God, and we applied it over our life and our heart, and we took the test by the movement of the Spirit. Do we demonstrate authentic faith in Christ through good works? Is it evident by our lives? that we're doing good works because God has done a good work in us. Then chapter 3, do you control the tongue? Is it evident that you're genuine in your faith, you have authentic faith because God has transformed your heart and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So is it evident by your tongue that God has transformed you with the reality of Christ? And then in chapter 3, do you exhibit wisdom? 
heavenly wisdom, not just worldly wisdom. And he gave us a distinction of that worldly wisdom is that which is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's actually fueled by the demons of hell. So he's saying, is it obvious that God has implanted his word in you? The spirit of wisdom dwells within you. Is it obvious that you have wisdom from heaven? Now, those are all the points of authenticity that he has been drilling us in. And chapter four is, doesn't change the pattern. Chapter four begins with another test. And this test is going to be, how are you engaged in friendship? Do you have friendship with the world or do you have friendship with God? And next Sunday, we're going to talk about uh, you have conflict, conflict within self and conflict with other people. How are you dealing with conflict? This proves the authenticity of your faith. So last week, I'll apologize for that because I gave you what appeared to be three points to a message, but in reality, it was 12 points. I just broke down the three into four subpoints. And as I walked away, I thought, Lord, I cannot do that to those people again this week. So... I'm splitting the message this week, and we're actually going to preach the message in two Sundays, and all of God's people say amen, amen to that. That's what I thought you would say. All right, so let's, let's just talk about friendship, because that's what James is talking about. He's saying, who are you a friend with? Who have you given affection to, love for? I recognized in the conversation that there was something in me that wasn't right. A guy came up to me and he said, oh, you have many friends on Facebook. This was a few years ago. And he kind of pushed a button in me that caused me to think, oh, I like that he just said that. I like that he recognized that I have a lot of people as friends on my Facebook account. Now, it's really silly, isn't it? Because just because you have a lot of friends on Facebook doesn't really mean that you have a lot of friends, does it? I mean, I've got a friendship on Facebook with a lot of you. Some of you, multiples. I don't know what's going on there, if you have multiple personality disorder or something, but you just constantly keep sending me friend requests. And probably what it is, you've been locked out of your account, you've forgotten the password, and you just start all over again. Or it could be that somebody in Eastern Europe has hijacked your picture and now is posting as if they're you i don't know what the advantage is of that but at any rate i'm friends with people from eastern russia or eastern europe or whatever wherever they're from maybe it's a chinese bot i don't know but at any rate i'm friends with a whole lot of people and sometimes i'm friends with multiple people but am i really friends with them my parents mentioned a person not long ago who said uh, he wants to meet you and it just happened that I came across him. I said, hey, I'm Randy Gunner. I, I want to be introduced to you. He said, oh, I know you. We're friends. And he began to share information about me, like personal stuff that a friend would know. Now, I'll be honest. You know how your brain kind of flashes multiple things at the same time? One of the flashes that went through my brain right now, is this how dementia starts, Lord? <laughs> that uh, I'm supposed to know this guy. He knows me, he knows about me, and I don't have a clue who he is. Well, come to find out as the conversation went on, he said, oh, we're Facebook friends. I'm like, oh, that's not really a friend, is it? That's sort of what James is saying. I mean, you may have a claim to friendship, but is God claim you as a friend you might claim to know him you might claim to be acquainted with him you might even claim that you're a friend of God but James says is God your friend 
Because if you have befriended the world, then you have, our term, unfriended God. If you have become a friend of the world, you actually act in enmity with God, in hostility to God. And James is going to call attention to that in chapter 4. So let's go to the scripture there and just kind of dial into what he's reading for us. Now, it's going to be a whole lot in the text, not many verses, but there's a whole lot going on in the text. And you know that I'm going to break it in two, right? And we're going to talk about some of it today. We're going to talk about a third of it today and, and two-thirds of it next week. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it to be no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Lord, our hope is found in that last sentence that you give grace to the humble. I humble myself before you along with the people in this room and those who are watching on the streaming services right now just to say, God, we need you. We have nothing to offer you except our brokenness and sin. We humble ourselves before you because you alone are the God of the universe. You alone are the sovereign one. And we ask in humility that you, by your spirit, would teach us this word and give us grace that we might walk in the treasure of its truth. And we pray this unto the glory of Jesus. Amen. I've got one point. One point in the message, and it's pretty easy to see in the text. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. A friend of the world is the enemy of God. And James makes this real clear. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So to understand the passage correctly, I think we have to disconnect from this worldly idea of what friendship is, which is a real watered-down definition, isn't it? Friendship often today is described as just being an acquaintance of. But the word that James uses in this particular epistle for the word friendship is only used in this verse, verse 4, in the entirety of the Bible. In its structure, this is the only place that it's used in this way. Now, there's some root along with this word that gives us some understanding about what the word means, but this is the only way it's structured in the Bible. So that, that causes us to say, oh God, you've got something to say to us that's very specific and very distinct. And the word for friendship in this case is a unique word. It's it's used in a parallel way as one to express love. In fact, when you look it up in its masculine form, oftentimes it's describing a friendship that is one that is engaged with affection and love. It's not, not an acquaintance. It's one who's given his life to another and for another. 
Uh, remember, the cousin of Jesus was John, and John was proclaiming the, the uh, baptism of repentance, calling people to, to repent of their life because the Savior was coming who would transform their life, who would baptize them with fire, purification, in other words. And John says when, they, when his disciples were asking about the relationship that he had with Jesus and what that meant to the ministry as they would have it from there forward, he was helping them to discover that his role was a supporting role. He was not the groom for the church. He was the supporting role for the groom. In fact, he describes in this way, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, you've been to weddings before and you can picture the scene. The groom and the bride are at the center of the stage and the groomsman are right there by the groom and all the groomsmen are those guys who are close in relationship to the groom and it's not just that they're close in relationship to the groom but they are excited for the groom they're anticipating the groom and the bride being one together in relationship and so john is saying my role in this is i'm the groomsman to the bridegroom to christ himself and i'm excited that the bridegroom has come to receive his bride now when he's saying he's a friend that gives you a little indicator of the depth in which he's communicating the usage of that word jesus did much the same when he was going to lazarus who was sick unto death he would raise him up but jesus said to his disciples that we must go because lazarus our friend needs us we must i must raise him and then jesus used this term uh, in the scripture in the old testament as he's talking about abraham the pre-incarnate christ the, the the one who is in relationship with abraham abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of god this is a relationship that has depth to it this isn't just an acquaintance this is abraham who has left his home left his land left the way of life and religion that was false in his prior days and he's come into relationship with god with a righteous journey and god said I call him a friend. Now, watch way, the way Jesus uses this in John chapter 15. I'm going to break the, the passage down in three different screens here because I think it's important for us to see. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And again, we're seeing the same root structure of the word. And so he's helping us to recognize in this passage that a friendship is a self-sacrificing union it's it's one that you can call in the middle of the night and you know that that friend is not only going to answer the call but they're going to act on the call do you have friends like that and not everybody's going to be that way right not all your acquaintances on facebook listed as a friend can you call like that but here's what jesus is saying that the friendship that he has with his followers that is genuine is a self-sacrificial friendship now look at the next part you are my friends if you do what i command you so jesus is saying to his followers you are my friends if you follow the commands that i give you so there's a connection to loyalty and obedience and of course there is jesus says if you love me you will obey me 
And so with friendship and this depth, this great relationship that we have with God and God has with us, we have loyalty and we have obedience. And Christ showed that as well. Christ was loyal and Christ was obedient to the Father that we might be brought into relationship. And then finally in this, this uh, John 15, he says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not what he is, his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What Jesus is saying there, there is intimacy in the relationship. I've held nothing back. I'm not withholding what I've heard from the Father. I now share with you openly in this relationship. We, we have the intimacy of truth and understanding and life together. So Christians have a privileged relationship, don't we? A distinct relationship with Christ Jesus. And man, are we ever privileged to have that you agree with that say amen yeah what a joy it is that god would bring us into relationship mind us we were enmity with god we were hostile to god i could show you a dozen verses today that who we were prior to god's grace being extended to us through christ jesus coming into relationship with him prior to him removing our sin and imputing the righteousness of christ prior to that every one of us was an enemy of god hostile and rebellious towards god in the way of god but he's changed that he has reconciled our relationship with god which we broke by christ jesus the great reconciler and he has reconciled it by taking away our sin and giving us credit for his glorious righteousness. All right, so what we're recognizing is friendship is a big word in the scripture. Jesus is using it in a big way, and James is calling us to understand the identity of what it is to be a friend of God or a friend of the world. You with me? Or with that understanding, we've got to recognize this. To be a friend of the world or a friend of Christ those are mutually exclusive from one another now i'm just going to throw it out here this is going to be one of those messages that you're going to say, ouch the western church today wants to have both of those and what james is saying they are opposed to one another you can't have a little bit of god and a little bit of the world you can't have a little bit of love for god and a little bit of love for the world jesus says you can't serve god and money you're going to hate the one and love the other. You've got to make a choice. So James is saying, is your faith claim authentic because you love God and you don't love the world? Because you can't love both. You can't have both. So friendship with the world is embracing the world. It is going with affection towards the things of the world. And James says, you cannot be a friend of the world. Now, friendship with the world means that we are drawn into worldliness to love its ways and to love and enjoy its affairs. Now, can I just take a little detour for a moment and just remind you what James is not talking about? James is not talking about us falling into temptation and struggling with temptation. He's not talking about us wrestling in sin, maybe engaging in the sin and circling back and saying, God, why did I do that? I hate that part of me. That's not what James is talking about. And he's not talking about the struggle that we have when we pledge not to do it, but we find ourselves circling back to it. He's not talking about uh, anything where we're just struggling and wanting it to be different, but it's not different. He's talking about us embracing 
the world lovingly embracing the world having affection for the world and being friendly towards the way of the world the world is anti-god it doesn't like that christ demands glory from all things that have been created by him it doesn't like that god mandates obedience to his word the world hates that and so when you and i love the world then we have turned in opposition to god now clearly to be a friend of the world is to love the world and all of its lust and all of its pride and you'll notice this verse that's coming on the screen now speaks to that i normally don't read to you out of the nlt but i think this is a good capturing of this these uh this verse for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions these are not from the father but are from where they're from the world they're from this world so what is that it's the love for possession it's the love for the lustful desires of our flesh it's the love for our flesh to be satisfied it's the love for pride and what what uh, john is saying in this passage is that is not from the father that's from the world and those are opposed to one another god god moves us in a totally different direction and in the same way james is saying you can't have a love for the world and a love for the father you're going to have to choose and love one or the other so in christ you and i have been rescued from that dominion of darkness that held us captive to constantly having to seek out the the desires of our flesh and constantly driven towards the way of the world and pride and possession christ has set us free from that he's come to rescue us from our sin and from all the dominion which was once holding us captive to it and he transformed us i mean here's a couple of passages that are absolutely revolutionary for us colossians 1 3 if you haven't memorized it this is one to memorize god has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son we're, we're no longer living in the world we're living in the kingdom now that means physically we're living in the world but our heart and our purposefulness and our givenness and our love for is now to this beloved kingdom that christ jesus possesses and so our attention and our affection ought to be in this kingdom that we have been transferred into not the one that we have been ushered out of therefore if anyone is in christ he's a new cre creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from god so if the new has come why are we going to circle back and show affection for the old why is your heart going to be given to the things that you have been rescued from you're a new creation things new have come all this is from god who is through christ he's reconciled us to himself in christ god was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them so what james is saying is along the lines of what paul is saying if god has rescued you and if god has made you new then why would you circle back and love what you have been rescued from why would you embrace that there's a clear dividing line in our salvation that ought to be evident in our journey of faith and when you don't see that clear dividing line of who it is you call friend god or the world then james says check your faith take a time out in life step back and check your faith because it may not be authentic so we're grateful that he gives us enough love to speak to us with that kind of candor I don't know about you but i struggle 
I hate the fact that I'm vulnerable to sin. I hate the fact that I have a tendency to not just succumb to sin, but sometimes eagerly go after sin. Anybody else like that? You find yourself in places that you don't want to be. Paul had that as an expression of a prayer he writes out for us in, in Romans 7, this anguish that we agree with and testify to. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God. The law of God, by the way, is the word of God. It's the treasure of God's truth given to us in the scripture. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, I hate this part of me, this part of me that was born with the sin of Adam, this part of me that longs to sin, to go after the things of the world. I hate that part of me. I love this part, this redeeming work, God's law written in my heart, this work of faith, the implanted word of God. I love that. And here's the tension. Paul says, I love that too, but what I find close at hand in my body, in my members, is this longing at times to do sin, and I feel captivated by it. Hey, by the way, there is coming a day that Jesus is going to rescue us from that tension. There's coming a day when our bodies will be resurrected unto him and we will see him. When we, when we see him, we will be like him in a glorious way and there will never ever be another movement towards or an inclination in sin. Praise be to God for that. And if that's where we're going, then that's what we ought to be loving. Not what we've been rescued from. But, of course, you know, Paul's feeling this angst that you and I are feeling. He's vexed within himself. A wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't just finish there, though, does he? Because the next verse is what gives us this hallelujah moment. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who's going to rescue us? Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And if he set us free, then we ought to love him. We ought to be friends with him, and not with that which he set us free from. So those who are made new in Christ, reconciled, should lovingly embrace what God has done in our lives. Lovingly embrace him as a friend. So now you can see why James is saying, hey, being a friend of the world is to be in enmity to God. Well, we don't use that word very much, enmity. It means hostile towards. It means hatred of. See, what the enemy tries to get us to think is, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. It's just what's on TV. It's just what's on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, whatever. It's what, it's what life is today. James is saying, check that, because to be a friend of the world is to be in hostility to God. I would even say worse than that. At the end of verse 4, he says, not only are you in enmity to God, but God is your enemy. I'm just going to say that 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 invokes fear. And rightly so. 
James is writing about the most significant conflict that we have in history. Oh, sure, next week I'm going to point out how we can be at rest with this inner conflict we have in self. And next week I'm going to talk about how we can be at peace with other people around us. But the biggest struggle is this fractured relationship between us and God and God and us. And James wants us to identify that Christ, the reconciler, has come to heal that broken relationship. So I believe he's making this blunt statement to people who are unsaved but are connected to the church in some way. He's not talking about saved people. A saved person is not an enemy of God. A saved person isn't hostile towards God. I think he's talking to people who have connected themselves to Christendom and are identifying those people as not being authentic in faith. And he's saying, you're actually an enemy of God because you love the world. You might claim salvation. You might put on the Sunday best. But in reality, not only are you hostile towards God, but God is your enemy. And I can tell you, you do not want God as your enemy. And so he's giving alert to that. Should you and I not be asking the same thing? Are there people that are connected to church but still disconnected from the kingdom of God. Not brought into the kingdom of light, they remain in the kingdom of darkness, and they are in, in, uh, as an enemy of God. Now you say, well, is that really how it could be? Oh, yeah. If you remember, Jesus was in conversation with the rich young ruler who wanted to know about eternal life, and he claimed to be a law keeper, remember that? He listed off all the laws that he had been a keeper of, remember what jesus said to him oh you're lacking in one thing remember what that is you need to go back and sell all that you have and give it to the poor now does jesus require you to sell all that you have and give it away no not unless you love it more than you love him but what jesus knew was that man's heart he loved the things of the world more than he loved god and he was telling him, you can't have it both ways. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or you're not going to be in relationship with me. That's what he's calling us to. Love him, hate the world, the systems of the world, the possessions of the world, the, the uh, fleshliness of the world. Now, the allure of the world hardens people's hearts to the genuine love and affection that God has for them. So he's writing to people who are there. Remember, Jesus gave a, an illustration, a, just a beautiful picture of this when he's saying, oh, the gospel is going out. And it's going, and it's settling in places. And in one of the places that it falls, it's falling among thorns, and the thorns grow up, and it chokes out the seed. Anybody ever planted something, and all kinds of other weeds come up and sort of choke out what you planted? <laughs> That's the life of being a gardener, isn't it? constantly trying to do that jesus went on to illustrate what uh, tell us what the illustration was about he says really this is about one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful 
In other words, that was somebody who said, oh, I love God. I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell when I die. I want to go to heaven. I want the blessings of God. I love God. But at the same time, they let the cares and the riches of the world choke out any love that they genuinely had. And he says, you can't have it both. Love God or love the world, but not both. So he gives a common warning to us, doesn't it? The scripture is constantly reminding us to not love the things of the world. The things of the world include the flesh. Paul writes it in this passage saying, hey, those who live according to the flesh live. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. They've made a choice. And he's saying, as James would say, the authenticity of your faith will be evident in what you are pursuing, what you're friendly with. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he warns them, those who had attached themselves to the church but not attached themselves to Christ, he gives a very distinct warning, for many of whom I have told, often told, and now tell you even with tears, you walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the, their belly and their, in their glory, they glory in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. So there's just warning after warning after warning to people who are connected to the church but not connected to Christ. So when it comes down to this, I want to just say, my friends, an authentic relationship with Christ is not something to mess around with. It's not something to play around with, and it's not something to guess about. Which is the reason why James is calling us to the test. Is it evident in your life that you are a friend of God, not a friend of the world? Or is it evident that you're a friend of the world? And here's what James is saying. If you're a friend of the world, then you are hostile towards God, and God is your enemy. I, I don't think you can put it any more bluntly. You say, well, preacher, why do you have to be so blunt? Because God is so full of love. Because he would not want to let you stay in a deceptive place where eternal damnation is certain. God is a God of love, so he calls us to task, to authenticity, and he lovingly says, I will reconcile this broken relationship that you broke. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God who calls out to us. That's the kind of God who says, I won't call you a slave. I'll call you a friend. And you say, I want to follow that God. I want to serve that God. Then that means you forsake all other things and follow him. The way Jesus would say it is, you deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. That's put down the things of the world and come follow me in the righteous way that I'll birth in you. Now, some of you need to make that decision. And today can be that day. With God's grace being poured out, he's calling out to you to be saved Save from the brokenness in your life. Save from the dominion of this world that has a grip on you. Save from the judgment of God that is against you already because of sin. He's calling you and me to that life. In just a moment, we're going to sing a standard hymn. It talks about 
the friendly faithfulness of God. And as we're doing that, I'm going to have a couple of guys standing down front, some ladies standing by as well. And they will receive any of you who are making a faith decision unto Christ, trusting him. Say, I want to forsake the things of the world and I want to embrace Christ. Then do that in faith that God indeed has sent his son that you might have eternal life in him. Let's pray together. Father, as we have heard, uh, you have shown us with clarity what life is meant to be and how Christ has made it to be new. I pray that you will give us the faith to be able to receive and walk in this truth. I pray for any who have been deceived to think that they can walk and embrace the world and embrace you at the same time. I pray, Lord, that that lie would be debunked and that truth, truth from your word, would be lifted up and we would embrace it pledge to live our life in the power of it. I pray for every person in the room, specifically those who need a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, to die to self and be raised new in him, that they might walk in the new way of holiness with him. I pray, Lord, against the world who tries to lure us to love it and to embrace its ungodliness. And I pray for your word to be implanted in us that we might long more and more for what is noble, pure, and right and true. To the glory of Jesus, I pray these words. Amen.